him and his wife were in the house and they heard a crash, a loud crash. They ran outside immediately and to find the black SUV crashed up against a tree. He went up there. He said it was about five people standing around the vehicle. Um, he did. I don't know what those people look like or anything like that. Um, but he ended up going to the vehicle and he saw my son. He just, and I asked for a full description of everything that he saw. And he said he saw Tyler kind of laid a little bit over on the passenger side. Uh, his eyes were open and he asked questions like, do you, can you hear me and blank or, you know, just trying to get him to respond. Tyler was none, did not respond to anything, did not blink his eyes, nothing. So Tyler had already was nearly transitioned at that point, mm. um, if not all the way, you know. Mm. So, but he got there literally right after the crash, just right there at the scene. And their house, from where the tree is located at, it was literally just a few feet. Take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. My heart is torn in pieces. It's my own. Truth is I'm tired Options are few I'm trying to pray But where are you? I'm all churched out Hurt and abused I can't fake what's left Truth is I'm weak, no strength to fight, no tears to cry, even if I try, but still my soul refuses to May 20th, 2022, Sabrina Parker's life changed forever. It changed dramatically, but her story didn't end. On May 20th, her son Tyler was driving on North Highland in between Skyline and North Parkway, and he was shot and killed while driving his car. A year and a half later, Sabrina still doesn't have many answers as to the motive of the shooting, the perpetrator of the shooting. She only knows that her son was killed on that day. She has been looking for answers for a while, and on the season two premiere episode of The Stories We Tell, Sabrina sits down with us and she tells her story. Her story isn't simply that her son was murdered. Sabrina has a story about why she came to Jackson. Sabrina has a story about how she has helped people navigate complex systems and ironically is finding herself now trying to navigate a complex system. Over the course of an hour and a half, Sabrina and I talked 
about what it was like to move to Jackson in 2016, how her nonprofit Helping Hands helped people find oral care and navigate the Medicare Medicaid system. We talk about her children, specifically Tyler, and how she learned the news on the day of his death and everything that has happened since then. The lead up to that, how she immediately found out the way he died, and how she's been searching for answers since then. And so part of this conversation is about hearing Sabrina's story because it's a story worth telling. And another part is telling Tyler's story and looking for answers to get justice for Tyler. And so while a lot of these podcast episodes have been simply conversations about a story, uh, this one has another motive. Uh, this motive is to get this story out to the public to see if anyone has any information about what happened on May 20th, 2022 that can help Sabrina find some closure to this situation. Um, everyone who comes on the show and records on these podcasts, I believe, is a brave person. To tell their story, it takes uh, quite a bit of vulnerability and quite a bit of courage, and this is obviously no different. So I have so much respect for Sabrina that she's willing to travel back down that road and tell that story of what is unequivocally the hardest day of her life. So I hope you listen to this full episode. It's long. It's an hour and a half, but there's so much value and worth in Sabrina's story, and there are so many answers that she still hasn't found. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, it's emotional. It, sometimes we talk about difficult topics, but it is definitely, I believe, worth a listen. I think that we owe um, Sabrina this as well. So again, thank you so much for listening to this. We hope that there are answers out there, and we hope that we can find those if you know anything, you will have an opportunity to get contact information for Sabrina at the end of the episode where if you happen to have heard something on that day or you have information about what might have happened, you can contact her or contact Crime Stoppers. And all that information is at the end of the episode. Again, I have so much respect for Sabrina for sharing her story on this episode. I hope you enjoy it. This is the first episode of season two, so you're, you're on a debut episode. Okay. Sabrina, I'm here with Sabrina Parker. Uh, Sabrina, you are you are not a lifelong Jacksonian, right? No, no yeah. A, a lot of a lot of people I have on on this are were born and raised in Jackson, like myself. Mm-hmm. But we are also people like me are very appreciative mm-hmm. of people like you who didn't grow up here mm-hmm. but have chosen to make their home here. So yes. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what brought you to Jackson, and how long you've been here. Mm-hmm. So thank you, by the way, for having me on. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I moved to Jackson December of 2016 is when I moved to Jackson, right before Christmas. <clears throat> so Jackson was my Christmas present for sure. And I chose to move here just to start a nonprofit. Um, that was a decision I made 
a few years prior to moving to Jackson, Tennessee. And honestly, I didn't want to move to Jackson. Um, God chose me to move here. I didn't choose Jackson, or you know, on my own. Um, the city I felt like could use the resources that I was designing and developing, and I wanted to do it here in Jackson. So, where were you before you moved? I was in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was across the Old Hickory Lake. You know, I was just living my best life over there, and and. But, you know, I kept praying to God, is this all that there is? Like, is there another purpose, another calling for me? I felt like I was being called to do something else. Uh, I'm a licensed broker by trade, and I was, you know, self-employed, working out of my home, and and really just very content, but then kept feeling drawn to do something different. <clears throat> and so I prayed about it literally for a year, about a direction, and finally God said, Look, Sabrina, if you had a blank check written from God and you can do whatever you wanted to do, what would that be? And I said I would start a nonprofit to help people. Having no idea how to start a nonprofit, just no experience, just corporate management experience, but no nonprofit experience. But then I started the nonprofit and moved to Jackson. What what was the nonprofit? Helping Hands of Tennessee. Okay, so... If people who don't, for people who don't know what Helping Hands is, mm-hmm. what does that focus on? What did Helping Hands, or what does Helping Hands focus on? So when we launched in 2017 in Jackson, we launched to provide Medicare education. And we help thousands of people understand Medicare, understand all the do's and don'ts, and provide directions, and also provide assistance to the state and the federal applications for assistance. Um, so we save people thousands of dollars just on that alone. But I noticed that there was a gap in the people that we were helping that end up getting some Medicare Advantage Part C plans um, that had dental benefits. There was nowhere for them to go to use their uh, dental benefits. And I tried to contact this person or this person to help them connect the dots. But I had a hard time finding any resources or dentists that would at that time be even willing to take the dental plans. And these are people that are making an average of $700 a month. Um, so, mm. you know, they really need all the help that they could get. And so that's why we ended up starting a dental clinic in 2018. We started with the Spring the Health event in March of 2018. And we did that at the Omen Arena. Mm. Had about 500 people there at that event. And then the very next month, we launched um, the Helping Hands of Tennessee Dental Clinic. So I've had to learn a lot about things that I never thought I would learn anything about. Um, but I also learned how oral health care can completely and totally change someone's mental health, their their physical health in and of itself, and put them on a whole different um where they can now take advantage of dating, a new job, and, and all because they have access to oral health care. So it's, it's needed. That is something, e- even trying to figure out the maze of Medicare, mm-hmm. okay, without even talking about the oral part of it, right? Mm-hmm. But just the maze of Medicare for mm-hmm. some people can be overwhelming, right? It's too many options. You got your Medicare supplements with Plan G and Plan F and Plan N, and it just the letters just keep going. And then you got your Part C plan, and when you put in the database under the federal government's website, your 
zip code, it's going to come up with 12 more plan options. So navigating through that process to figure out which one is should I take or then let alone trying to figure out your state applications and your federal applications. And so uh, and those are for your assistance, people who need assistance with their prescription drugs or they need assistance with their Medicare Part B premiums that the federal government charges every single month. So we were needed for that purpose. But then we had to address that gap somehow because no one was addressing the gap here in Jackson at all. Um, there were some dental clinics that came and left, you know, and so um, that was a way for us to help low income individuals um, be able to gain access to oral health care. That is something that for me, at least, it, I feel like that is the definition or something like this is the definition of what of what privilege is. And what I mean by that, most people. When I say most people, most people that I see on a day-to-day basis don't have to worry about oral health care. Mm-hmm. It's something that's built into their insurance plan they have right. with their company or whatever else. Right. Uh, but it's something that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Because, But if we didn't have it, it's one of those things that if you didn't have, mm-hmm. it could make your life completely different than it yeah. is. If you didn't have access to quality oral health care or consistent oral health care. Exactly. And that's something that I think probably people on a day-to-day basis don't ever think about. They don't think about it. And, and until... Like you said, you don't have those benefits. You're low income, particularly senior citizens, mm-hmm. where they will sacrifice everything to take care of their grandchildren. You know, even on their low income, they will sacrifice everything. So they'll go with that toothache for months mm-hmm. and months and months and not do anything about it. Um, so and you you're really talking about transforming someone's life. So I you know, we have thousands of patients i mean we've just our mission of mercy alone you know we got a chance to help 1200 patients uh, just for that two-day event that we were doing annually Uh, we temporarily now have closed our dental clinic after my son's passing i personally as a ceo and founder i needed a reset myself and so we're now resetting our company and moving in different directions still with the focus of what can we do about oral health care how should we provide those benefits to make it easy for people to gain access and so there's some ideas that the board we're collaborating with to to put that forth to the public. So I'm excited about the future of Helping Hands, um, but that's what we've been able to do since 2017. Like that, that, that is super important work. And I think, you know, sometimes that kind of work is even more important because it's something, like I said earlier, that people probably don't think about on a daily basis right. unless you don't have right access to we that, see it as a privilege it's what it is i mean yes we do right. see it as a privilege and that's the mindset that we have as as access to the insurance itself is is difficult and half of it you know the deductibles are so high and mm-hmm. your co-payments are high and it's 50 percent of the root canal i mean my goodness so it's expensive mm-hmm. you know to get a crown to get a root canal all those are expensive to have in the first place so imagine if you're on a low income oh. but all you have to do is imagine having a really bad toothache <laughs> sure. and not having any money to do anything about it that's where you can now have empathy. But even on a broader scale, if one doesn't get help, I'll give you one example. Um, we had a patient come in. The doctor says, you have to have all your teeth removed or else you're going to die. Mm-hmm. That was his options. Don't get them removed. The poison in your body is going to kill you. And so he went around shopping and trying to find someone his tooth had broken off to the root and so those are oral surgical uh, procedures there and he could not find anywhere to go that he could afford Mm -hmm. to go to 
Finally, he found our facility and I met him on his last visit. So I didn't see him on his first few visits into our clinic. And what got me is the dental assistant, when she saw him leaving the facility the day I met him, she, she wanted me to see his new dentures. And so he was smiling Aww. with his new teeth. He was so excited to show me his dentures. And she had tears in her eyes. And I said, tell me the story as he was walking away. And she told me how he came in, what the doctor had told him, and how we were able to help him get all of his teeth extracted. He could afford it on a small sliding scale and then was able to also afford to get his dentures. And then I met him the day that he was leaving out. Now, the key to that story is that when he first came in our facility, the gentleman had a wheelchair that he was in because his health had Mm. deteriorated to that point. Um, Bacteria in your mouth is just going to cause that to go to all your major organs and so when I saw him he was walking out with a cane and that's the difference that all healthcare can make you can literally save someone's life so we absolutely need to have ways to provide people access to oral health care and we also need to have ways that people can know about the resources more importantly than anything else the resources sometimes are here no, if it's oral health care or food or housing and et cetera. But sometimes people, oftentimes people, I should say, don't know the resources even exist and don't know how to navigate that process. Yeah, it's, a, it's about education, but then it's also about action. Like exactly. It feels like that's what both of those are. And right. you, like you said, oral health care, and I, th- I don't think people really understand how important that is in to, to your overall physical health. Exactly. And I think that's probably something that's overlooked. And again, that may be an issue of like, like you said, like privilege mm-hmm. where we don't have to worry about that because it doesn't ever affect certain people. Right. Exactly. Like in the way it does other. Exactly. Other people may not have the means to have that consistent mm-hmm. type of health care. So how did Jackson, like why, why did you pick or why was Jackson chosen for you? I guess, <laughs> did you have a connection here for, at all or you just came in cold? So I had clients here that I'd help as a broker with their Medicare. So okay. I'd, I had some clients here. I, had, I have clients all over the state, um, but majority in middle Tennessee because I was living in that area. But I kept being drawn to West Tennessee for some reason, and I really couldn't put my finger on it. And I felt very comfortable as I would drive around in different counties and helping people. I have, you know, like I said, clients all over West Tennessee and um so Jackson didn't strike me as anything but a passerby as mm-hmm. I stopped to get something to eat or drink as I'm going to these rural counties, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but yet when I came up with Helping Hands of Tennessee and developing this nonprofit, Jackson was the first city and the only city that stayed on my mind. Wow. And I kept praying to God, like, why Jackson, God? I was like, God, I mean, the the, the crime, I mean, you do realize in the schools, I mean, I, it's in the headlines. I mean, I'm living in Mount Juliet, Wilson County. You know, the mm-hmm. schools are great. You know, mm-hmm. crime is low. I mean, it's so I couldn't understand why I was being called or I'm going to pull to Jackson, Tennessee. Um, but after I prayed about a year about whether I should do this or not, I start making preparations to transition me and my family to move to Jackson. So, so you, you were you got here in December of 2016. Yes, this is not. You know, when I hear 2016, I'm like, well, that's not all that long ago. But then I'm like, man, that was almost seven years ago. Yeah. So it kind of is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Almost. You know, it's it's more than half a decade. Um. So you moved here. You said with your family and that in you and your kids. Yes. And, and who? So tell me about your kids. When you moved here in 2016, who came with you? 
it was my baby girl Kelly and my son Tyler. So they were with me. We all packed up and we moved to to Jackson, Tennessee. How old were they in uh, 2016? Yeah. So Tyler was uh, Tyler was in middle school when we when we got the. Uh, to Jackson and Kelly was going to Thelma Barker Elementary School. She's now about to become a senior. I mean, she is a senior going into her senior year high school. So they were just babies coming to Jackson. How did they, how did they handle the move? They just love mom. Okay. So whatever mom wanted, you know, just I hyped it all up and we had a good Christmas that year. Oh, I bet. You know? you gotta, you, it better. If you move in, if you move in towns, there be, there'd be a lot of gifts under the tree. So they were just excited, you know, because it's what, you know, they thought this is good because mom says it's good. You know, they, great. they were little and, you know, non-teenage years, they're always just like, okay, dad, mom are great. You know, mm-hmm. then you, they'd be a teenager and that's a whole different can of worms. <laughs> when they become so. a teenager, <laughs> I feel like parents become strangers at that point. That, that is, is my experience. That is least. true. <laughs> I've had three of them, so I can say that's just the way it goes. It's the way it is. That's the it? way it is. It's the way my daughter is. She's yeah, 16 and she has no use for me yeah. except for a roof over her head and a meal when, when she needs it. It'll circle back around though. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when you, you said Tyler was in middle school, mm-hmm. Kelly was in elementary, mm-hmm. um, 2016. Yes. So I'm trying, I am trying to put the year in my head when I had Tyler in class. Mm-hmm. And I think that might've been, and correct me if I'm wrong, it might've, cause I taught eight, I taught him when he was in the eighth grade. Mm-hmm. That might've been 2017, 2018. 18 would that have tracked mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, so he yeah. moved so he was in the seventh grade mm-hmm. when y'all moved here yeah, okay yeah, so i got yeah, it right yeah. man that's amazing <laughs> so um i taught eighth grade english language arts at northeast and tyler was in my class um and so before we get in before we get into tyler's story i kind of want to share something from an article i read recently mm-hmm. um the local nbc affiliate interviewed you and you describe you told a story about Tyler, y'all out by a campfire uh-huh. or a, a fire pit. What? Something. There was fire involved, right? Uh-huh. Y'all are yeah. sitting around, <laughs> and he walks up to you and he says, "I'm on fire." Yeah, my mom on fire. I'm on fire, and 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 y'all started laughing because mm-hmm. you just thought he was just he was around. joking around, <laughs> like I I am cool or whatever. I'm on fire means in that context, but he wasn't joking around. No, he no. was literally he was literally on fire. But he is so chill. Yes. Yeah. That he was just he was just telling y'all what was going on. Yeah, no elevation in his voice <laughs> whatsoever. I mean, it went from there to him rolling on the ground, which we thought was hilarious. Like, wow, he's gonna play this whole scene out, right? He's really into <laughs> but it. He really was on fire, and the shock of it all for me was that he just was so calm about it. Which is amazing. Was he always like that? Always like that. So from the time he was born, yes. what was it, so as a as a baby or a toddler, mm-hmm. was he pretty? Ch- I know all babies and toddlers cry and get upset, but mm-hmm. was he a lot more chill than yeah, the other l- kids? A lot more chill. Toddler, though, the difference is he never wanted to be out of my arms into the arms of a stranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other babies would allow other people to hold them, not so much Tyler. And now I appreciate that so much on a different level that I had all the bonding uh, with my son and because I didn't know at the time I wouldn't have him very long. But um, Tyler was just quiet. He would, as a little boy, he would play cars in his room and he would literally take time. I mean, hours. I mean, I'm just saying hours he'd be in there with his little cars. But he would just take the time to line them up one way, 
it'll line up horizontal then he'll just look at it and then he'll line it up vertical i mean it was just like that's how he played so unlike when i used to own a childcare center and all these little boys were running around and jumping off the tables and screaming and that's what i was used to from little boys my son was not he did not play that way and he played football later on. I got him to start playing some football. I said, hey, I said, hey, do you want to play some football? And he goes, yeah, mom. And, you know, he was a little chunky at the time and just as cute as a button. And so, you know, I got him into football and we practiced in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> you put the helmet on and everything in there you, 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 we didn't have the helmet okay, on okay. <laughs> mom not being safe at all just playing in the living room and he's throwing me a ball and it wasn't a football but he was throwing me a little mm. ball a little nerf ball and then his job was to tackle me you know so that was his job so then when he would get on the field I'm like alright you know you're going to be ready to go and you know I, I was divorced you know mm -hmm. so it was just me and my babies and so Tyler would go on the field and he just wouldn't tackle anyone the game would come and he wouldn't tackle anyone and I'm like being the coach at home like dude what's going on like you didn't tackle anybody and he's like well mom I'm gonna hurt them if I tackle them wow. and so he would not want to be involved in hurting anyone of course his mom got slung all the way across the river of course floor, but <laughs> <laughs> I had the sofa to land on but he did not want to do that on the field he just thought I'm going to have enough force to end up hurting one of these kids, and I'm not going to want to do that. I don't want to hurt somebody. So no. I said, oh, <laughs> you might not want to be playing football. Yeah, <laughs> if you're worried about hurting somebody, football is probably not, probably not, probably not the sport Maybe you'll you. be a coach, son. Later on, you can be a coach for football. I, I was sort of the same way when I played football, except the opposite. I was afraid if I hit somebody, it would hurt me. So I was like, I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to get yeah. hit. So I'm like, I, that, football is not my thing. <laughs> when I had Tyler in class, and, mm -hmm. and this is something I think that's going to to speak to a lot of what his personality was like and and even that story what you just said sort of confirmed that a lot of times as a middle school teacher you know i had a hundred kids i would see throughout the day mm -hmm. three classes of about almost 30 kids in each okay so close to 100 kids i had on my on my roster and as much as you would like to know every child by name for the first two months you it's really hard to do. Like yeah. you work really hard at remembering names. And, and sometimes the hardest kids to remember their names are the quiet ones. Mm -hmm. The quiet students, I think a lot of times teachers love quiet kids because you don't have to take time to like settle them down. Mm -hmm. You can just teach. Mm -hmm. There's another side of that coin though where I think a lot of quiet kids just sort of slip under the radar yeah. and there are issues going on mm -hmm. and teachers don't see it because they just, the quiet kids want to be camouflaged in mm -hmm. a way. Because mm -hmm. it, so Tyler was a quiet kid, but he was never one of those kids who flew under the radar for me. Mm -hmm. Like I always, I knew Tyler's name from almost the beginning of the year because while he was quiet, he also had a funny personality, mm -hmm. but he was so chill and so quiet, mm -hmm. you know, and usually both of like those two things, the combination of those two things don't happen in middle school, mm -hmm. but that was my, I remember that always about him mm -hmm. and usually kids who are quiet and non-disruptive, I usually just kind of forget about them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just because of the management of every, of everything yeah. else going to middle, in a exactly. middle school class. Yeah. But Tyler wasn't that he was so quiet and mm -hmm. I had a nickname for him and I, I, I've been trying to remember it for a long time, and I can't. I can't remember what the nickname was, but I would call him that every so often. And he would, mm -hmm. he would smile, or whatever, you know, he would never like crack up, but it was mm -hmm. always just like this, this mm -hmm. soft smile. So, 
I remember him as an eighth grader, and I remember him in class, um, like I said, being very quiet, like you just described, but also having personality, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? And I think that's probably what made him memorable to me is because I didn't see that combination a lot mm-hmm. in a middle school classroom. So after he left Northeast, he <clears> went <throat> to Northside. Yes. And went, how, how was how was high school for him? You know, for me as a parent, I was concerned. There was some disruptions going on at Northside that I was very concerned about. So I pulled Tyler out of Northside. Um, He spent a year almost at Jackson Christian School, and then his last year, I pulled him back into Mm. Northside. He just wasn't. Yeah, he he played football at the Jackson uh, Christian School, and then. You know, he liked playing football, but he missed his friends at Mm -hmm. Northside. So to appease him and for me to help manage that process, I put him back over there at Northside. Now, mind you, Tyler, when he was in middle school, all the way through high school, he never thought he was supposed to be in school. (laughs) He was one of those kids that thought, what is this going to do for me long term? And he was trying to rap like, I'm never going to be a math teacher or have a job where this is going to be relevant to me. That was his logic. Okay. So as a parent, it was just me going like, can we just get the high school diploma? Let's just do that. You know, let's just, just for kicks and giggles. So it was a challenge, you know, for me and it for us just throughout school. Right. But so high school was no different for Tyler. He just wasn't enthusiastic ever about going to school. But he got through it, praise God, and got his diploma. Um, But he wasn't involved in any activities. He really just had three main friends and really just one really best friend um, that he just meshed well with. And that was his best friend, you know, to the very end. Uh, So he was still quiet, though, in school. He just wasn't involved in anything, really. He just went there and would be glad that he was leaving and... (laughs) Get there, you know, get your work done. Got his high school on. diploma, yeah. and I was so happy about that, you know. And and that was just such a special day just to celebrate his high school graduation. And then we spent, you know, the, the rest of our time trying to figure out what is it that you really want to do. So we struggled with that because he wasn't entertaining college. It just it wasn't something he was drawn to. My girls right off the bat, it seemed like as soon as they could talk, like, well, I'm going to go to college. But my son, not so much. So it was me trying to figure out, okay, are you interested in this? What about this? And I presented all these different options to him to see what will pull him to being really to entertain it and to see his goals long term. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to be excited about his future. And so I couldn't draw that out. But a couple of weeks before his passing, we got to that point. So it took so much of that energy, but I kept presenting, kept presenting. And finally, we got something that he felt good about, I felt good about, and there was a clear future for him to live a financially good life and not have any financial struggles um, and be content. And he had clear direction and purpose. But that literally happened two weeks before his passing. It's interesting Sort of the idea we have for teenagers, 16, 17, 18 year olds uh, in public education and private education with college, with work, all these things, the expectations we put on them to have it figured out like, hey, this is what I I know what I want to do. And Mm -hmm. now I've got to declare a major. Now I've got to do this. And Mm -hmm. then you get to the end of that. and You're like, well, do I really want to do this or not? Right. We're asking a lot Mm -hmm. of kids to make these decisions 
that are going to affect the rest their of their lives exactly. when they're when they're when they don't really have any idea what life is about mm-hmm. or even that experience on their own and, and i'm not saying i have the answer to that but my daughter is about to be a junior and we're starting to look at colleges but she's like i don't know what i want to do mm-hmm. and i'm like well you'll figure it out but then i think back to when i was that age i thought i was going to be like a missionary or in ministry and i don't even go to church now. like there are all these things that mm-hmm. you think you are when you're 16 mm-hmm. that you're not when you're 28 exactly and there's a lot of pressure put on but you know to to hear you tell it sometimes it almost feels like that's a negative thing when a kid doesn't know what they want to do Mm -hmm. like they're they're we almost punish them for that and not like personally punish them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but just the way the structure is they're punished for not knowing but at the same time like why do we expect them to know when they're that age right so you know it's interesting and i think it speaks a lot about tyler that he was very honest. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what I want to do right. because I think a lot of people just follow these systems and structures we have in place. Well, I'm supposed to go to college, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to go to college mm-hmm. and then I'm going to figure But he was honest enough to be like, I, that's not for me. It's not right. I don't know what I want it to do. So, so, and it also speaks a lot to the relationship that you had with each other mm-hmm. that he was at that age. Like, we just talked about teenagers not really wanting anything to do with their parents, but right. it sounds like. He was really leaning on you for that advice mm-hmm. and, yes. and and sort of walking through that period of, you know, being unknown to mm-hmm. him. Is that accurate? That is absolute. Tyler was more interested, even through high school, about his spirituality. He would spend a lot of time focusing on his spiritual life, um, not church life, mm-hmm. uh, but his spiritual self. Mm-hmm. And he was very aware of who he was as a spiritual being and his relationship with a higher power, a Mm -hmm. higher source, God, Jehovah, whatever some people may call him. But that's what he was, the conversations with him had to do with financial wealth. He was Mm -hmm. always, I've never seen a kid in high school that was concerned about his FICA score. Wow. That's probably good. You probably need more kids concerned about He had Credit Karma app. Okay. On his phone. Yeah. And he was always like, Mom, my score is now this. Because uh, I was like, 800 is really great, son. Yeah. You want to do And so he was like, I'm going to get 800. I'm going to have an 800. Yeah. And so that was his focal point. <laughs> he would teach some of the kids at school about his credit score and why it was important and why they should learn about it. It's amazing. Literally, those are some of the conversations that he would have. Um, but his, again, academics was not, but financial wealth and how to get there is what he was entertaining and then his spiritual side so we would spend hours on deep conversations about spirituality and just unlocking all the things that some people don't know that's there within themselves and how to reveal that out and as i learned i would share and as he learned he would share and so those are the conversations that tyler and i would have which is I consider it the most precious conversations to have with any person, but to have it with your own child is quite amazing. Well, and those conversations are so important because I think they, I think that's got to be the starting point of any decision that you make. And I don't even mean from a religious aspect, but you've got to be like, you've got to really understand yourself Mm -hmm. spiritually, emotionally, mentally, all of those things, Mm -hmm. whatever words you want to pick all three to know what you want to do as a person moving forward. So mm-hmm. I think that's necessary to take those next steps and maybe get clarity mm-hmm. on, on moving forward. And the fact that 
he had those conversations with you again speaks to that relationship i think and it helped him with manifesting what he wanted and understanding because we could have those conversations about manifesting and so two weeks prior to his passing um and again let me back up and say that i didn't want to put my ideas and push them you know as a parent i just never did that on to any of my children i would just present like, I hear you're interested in this. Well, here's a career that can back that up. Mm-hmm. So that's how I present things. So I went to, I was part of West Star, mm-hmm. went to this class where we were at TCAT and learned about their trucking program and how much they can make coming right out of their, getting their driver's license, their, their trucking license. And I'm like, okay, $90,000 a year? Okay, well, uh, let me tell my son about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he may want to start a trucking company, you know. And so we had a conversation about it. We talked about every single step that, you know, I, I casually mentioned the steps that he would need to take. And then he said, wait a minute, I'm, he thought about it, came back a couple of days later and said, I'm interested in that. And so then we got into the nuts and bolts of it where we talked about, okay, well, here's what you need to do first. Here's the second step. And I was just railing them off. And I didn't know, but he was writing all of that down. Later on after he passed, um, well, I'll say this. He told my girls about what he was about to do. And he already started his college placement studies for TCAT for his trucking license. So he was taking every step. He knew his first step, son, just get your certificate. You just get your you know, driver's license. And that way you start now having that trucking license and you, you pass your first step. So how, how much of a relief was that? For you, and maybe it wasn't. I, I'm just thinking about myself as a parent, and if my daughter's like, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know what I'm going to do, and I just kind of, uh, I want to figure this out, but I don't know. And then finally, that day that she's like, Hey, this is it. Now I've got my plan. Was were you relieved? That is the biggest relief I have as a parent is is that moment where they go, Aha! That that look on their face of excitement, and then they hear his voice with so so much enthusiasm. Because as chill as Tyler was, mm-hmm. it was hard to get him to be like really excited about anything, but he was really excited about that. He let all the girls know his his next move. He let his dad know. I mean, he was just, this is what I'm going to be doing. And that's the moment you feel as a parent like, man, I can leave this planet and, and they're going to be okay. And they're going to be fine. And that's all you like. That's, that's all you want. That's all you want. That's all you want. That I, I connect with that so much. Mm-hmm. That's all I want mm-hmm. for my daughter yeah. is that she be okay. Yeah. Be happy and be okay. Exactly. Whatever that is. And you want that. And so I got a chance to see that out of him. And see all that excitement a few weeks before he passed. Or I knew that he was on track. Yeah. And that's, like I said, what a relief. And and I'm sure that that made you extremely happy. So you've referenced this a few times in the conversation. Um, he kind of figured this out a few weeks before he passed away. So I want to shift the conversation to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was May 20th. Yes. 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, on the radio, when you were on the radio with us the other day, uh, you said that you were at home mm-hmm. and you lay down and take a nap. That's true. And uh, I think Tyler had gone to your office to do some studying or, or, or along those lines of preparing for whatever his next steps were mm-hmm. for the future. And yes. then uh, I, I'll let you uh, take this story from there. Okay. Um, so, so just to sum up to this point, um, you moved here in 2016. You started a nonprofit, did a lot of great work. Your kids that were with you, Kelly and, and Tyler. Um, Tyler graduated, trying to figure out what he wants to do. You guys have that on track. He's doing the work to make that happen. 
and then May 20th sort of changes everything. Mm-hmm. It changes everything. So I came home, like you said, I took a nap, and I was I came home with Kelly. Tal and I joked about Kelly a little bit and, and had some laughs. And I will say, let me back that up even further. That night, May the 19th, mm. uh, that night, Tal and I were debating about whether he should have a tutor for his college placement test which is what I would want, or whether he should just study it on his own. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to study, but he said, okay, mom, I will go ahead and just do the tutor. I will, I will do that. And so then we watched a movie. We laughed. It was a stupid movie, but we laughed so hard off that movie. <laughs> and I was so glad we had that moment because he wouldn't hardly watch any of my movies. You know, <laughs> what was the movie? Do you remember? I don't even remember okay. the name of the movie right now, but it was so lame and so stupid. I can tell you that. But we just giggled off that movie, and I was so thrilled that he wanted to watch something that I wanted to watch because usually that wasn't happening. But that night he wanted to hang out with mom, and so we had that last night together, mm-hmm. which is so important for my memory. And that next day, I w- went to work, and then I went shopping for groceries, and Kelly and I came back, and like I said, Tyler and I just joked around a little bit with Kelly. She was kind of mad at me about something, <laughs> and um, and he goes, Mom, that's just Kelly. I go, yeah, I know. That's just Kelly, and so we just kind of joked around, and we told each other, I love you, but baby, I'm so tired. I'm going to take a nap, and I went to take a nap, and I immediately got up from my nap, and I went to go walking, and my walk is from, I live near... Lambeth, mm-hmm. um, Memphis, Lambeth, and I walked to Royal Street. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty good walk. And as I was coming back, I got a phone call uh, from my daughter to let me know that a police officer was looking for me. But this police officer that was looking for me, we were at a virtual meeting that morning. And I just thought the only reason why he'd be looking for me is to talk about the meeting, which mm-hmm. w- was a great conversation about reducing gun violence in Madison County. And then he called me because I, I blew it off. I was like, oh, I just talked to him later. And then a few minutes later, he, he calls me mm-hmm. and he said, I really need to talk to you. Where are you at? And I said, well, I'm walking and I, I, we can talk later. And he said, no, I need to talk to you now. And he said, where are you at right now? And I said, well, I'm about to approach Coleman Transmission. And he, he said, just hang out there. I'm on my way now. And so he met me there. <clears throat> it was Deputy Tisdale. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it at the time, but this was his first time ever telling someone about the passing of their child. Um, So he met me there and he said, you know, he about my car. He described the car. Is that your vehicle? And I said, yes. And then he said, well, do you know Tyler Guy? And I that's my son. And then he showed me his picture to verify that's the right person. And then he told me that my son had passed away. At what point in the conversation did you start to worry something bad had happened or was it did that not register at all until he said your son has passed away yeah it did not register at at all i just assumed that tyler got caught speeding Mm. i mean i literally just thought you know he was speeding and like he got in trouble for speeding i'm like oh my goodness (laughs) and my mom was thinking like he must have been going really fast for to a have for a police officer be yeah. in my face talking to me or he got in a car accident those were the two things of, of my worst case scenarios that i had in my mind but everything was going to be okay you know in my mind until he said what he said and i was still just shocked sure like, what do you mean because that couldn't have sunk in right in and, and, and i said you know so it just took me a while to really grasp what he was saying was true 
And I got in his vehicle because he was helping me get to the hospital. Mm. And it was sinking in like, wait a minute, this is real. And it, the whole thing really, that whole day, to be honest, just felt like a like a blur, like I was just in a fog. Mm-hmm. You know, even when the medical examiner came in to talk to me and, and tell me what I was going to find and that I had to ID my, my child. Um, all of those conversations, I remember them vividly, but I just felt like I was in a dream. I'm sure. Like, it, 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 even looking back now, mm-hmm. does it all just feel like a haze? Like It does. It, from his funeral to picking out his casket, mm-hmm. the graves, all of that, I became at that time more robotic, I guess, if you will, because I was more about let's get this job done, let's get this task done. And I didn't have a lot of emotion to it at that time. If you look back on an interview I did with WBBJ, I just looked at peace, sure. you know, just very peaceful. Um, the reality wouldn't set in until weeks later. And that's when the reality of all of this became very heavy for me to where I was absolutely in a state of depression. Mm. Um, And my daughter Kelly got me out of that depression. Wow. She was able to pull me out. So so that day, and I can't imagine, and I know that's cliche, like as soon as I said I can't imagine, like of course I can't imagine, like most people, and that's an experience that unless you experience it yourself in mm-hmm. that way, there's yeah. no way to, to, exactly. to necessarily empathize. I mean, I don't know what that feels right. like. I don't want to pretend. You don't to want know. to know. No, I don't want no. to know. No, and, no, and nobody does. No. Um, so you had to, did you go alone to the hospital to identify? Tisdale was with me. Okay. Um, then I immediately, he departed and I was with the investigators. Uh, my two daughters, uh, my 27-year-old and my baby daughter, were. they arrived there to the hospital. Um, I had not even told them about his passing at that time. I had not told them that he was shot and killed. Um, I told them that he was in the hospital and I needed them to come there. Um, so when they got there, they overheard conversations with the investigators, which is the worst way to mm-hmm. find out. Mm-hmm. And they just blurted out, wait a minute, he's dead. And so. So you had to manage that. You yes. had to sort of like start to sort of at least try to pick Realize up those pieces. Realize, wait a minute, they, point. yeah, so now I'm consoling them and getting them to realize what I had to realize. And the investigators are asking everybody question, all, all of us. So we had all of these investigators, like four or five of them, asking us all these questions in one of the rooms at, at the in the hospital. And from there, then I had to go to the room to see my son, to ID him. And that part, at first, my second oldest daughter was with me. She just had to leave, you know. Um, the medical examiner, this is the hard part, where they say to you, you cannot touch him, mm. you can't kiss him, you can't touch him, you can't, you know, you, you you cannot. His body is now evidence. That was the exact words that she said. So I couldn't even touch him or kiss him or anything. What? I just had to look at him. And, and if you don't answer this, that's okay. But what, and it just crossed my mind when you said that. What was your first instinct, like as a mother, I your maternal to instinct? Kiss him. I wanted to hold him. I wanted to tell him I love you, and I just wanted to just touch him. Yeah. And that not having that is 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 there's no way to describe that because me standing there, not being able to put my hands on my child, that's like torture to me. You know, that was like torture to me. From what you said on the radio the other day, even even I, I going to identify Tyler. 
he looked like himself. Yeah, he looked like himself. And mm-hmm. I immediately prayed out loud with the medical examiner there. And it was just she and I at that moment. Um, no, actually, my daughter was still there at that time. And I prayed for whomever did this to my son. I, I couldn't. That was my first reaction mm-hmm. was to pray for that person because I'm, I'm looking at my child deceased now. So I'm now going to pray for who did this to him. Mm-hmm. And my instinct was to pray and say, I forgive you for what you did. Well, I'm well. going to forgive you for what you did, because if I don't forgive you for what you did, I'm going to carry hate in my heart. And I'm going to carry and that's going to be even more mentally draining than just a loss itself. If I'm going to have hate and sadness, that's a lot. So. I let that go immediately, and I knew that's what I needed to do for myself. So that's what I did. Have you? Has that feeling stayed the same? Yes. Since then? Yes, that has stayed the same. Um, I just don't have it within me yeah. to just, you know, even if someone today made me mad over something silly, sure. I just let things go pretty quickly. You know, I just don't have that just linger on. So, and I want to make sure whomever did this know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to ever hate that person, but I'm disappointed in the decisions that they made that day. And I believe that they have some other issues that are obviously going on with them to land them to that space. Mm-hmm. I don't think people are born to just set out to do make bad decisions. I think their environment and some situations that are maybe whatever their experiences are in life they they may have adverse childhood experiences whatever that is that landed them to that space to make that type of decision to murder someone who was a very good soul a good space to have in this place mm-hmm. and that's what they took away from me they didn't take him just away from me they took him away from everybody else that loved him and everyone else that would have loved him yeah so I let that go immediately for my own sanity. And I think it touched the medical examiner. I think it touched her. Um, I don't know if I should say it, but I will. She, she allowed me to have something that was in her, his pocket. Mm. She said he has some money in his pocket. And it wasn't but like 5 or $6. It was nothing. But I have that. I just keep it in my drawer and I, you know, as a memory for him. And there's a blood stain on that money. Um, but I didn't see him, his body, in a way that didn't look like Tyler. He he just looked like he was just He's laying asleep. there sleeping. Yeah. And so, so. I, I think that, again, I, I can't imagine that situation. I think that would be my first response, too, as a parent. To, I just want to, to see, I just, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's a, that's a, a natural and a normal response for any parent uh, in, in that situation. To, to want to do that just instinctually mm-hmm. not even think about it like that's mm-hmm. just what i want to do and i'm mm-hmm. sure that was hard not being able to yeah, do that to pull yourself back was very very hard so take us to what you were told by i guess investigators mm-hmm. or witnesses because you mentioned he was he was shot mm-hmm. um and the way you told on the radio a few days ago he was he was leaving your office yeah he had uh went to my office um he did what I really didn't want him to do. I didn't want him to study for the college placement test on his own. I wanted him to have a tutor. But he decided, you know, while I was sleeping, that he was just going to go do that. And he would often just use my car and 
and I wouldn't say anything and I'm not using it myself. His car was very iffy, right. <laughs> very, very iffy car. So he went to my office. I had no idea when I went jogging, when I went walking, um, that he was gone with my car. The car is parked in the back of the house. I left out the front door. I assume that Tyler and Kelly were in the house when I left. I had no idea that he was gone. Uh, my daughters all saw him leave. I just didn't have any idea. So it was a shock to me when the officer was describing my car because I'm like, wait a minute. And, and, and in fact, I remember saying to Officer Tisdale that, no, Tyler's at home. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call him right now. In fact, but when I looked up his face, when I was about to call him, I knew he, yeah. that it was real. That's when it hit me there. But um, so I got sidetracked with that in my oh, thought. Okay. But the bottom line is um, I just assumed that he was home. Mm-hmm. Um, that day, and so he was at your he was at your office studying, and he so he leaves. I'm sorry, we no, went yeah. back to the helping yeah. hands. Yeah, so he left to go to my office, and he was studying for his college placement test. Mm-hmm. He was on the phone with my oldest daughter, who had just saw him leave to go to my office, and then he was on the phone with his friend Jaquan. But during that time, he was on the computer studying. Literally, he was studying for the TCAT college placement test. Later on that night. When my oldest, second oldest daughter and I went to my office, we found the computer literally right there at the TCAT college placement study guide. And so that's what he was doing. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, he left when he got there and started studying, but he wasn't there very long. And then he left and turned right on uh, North Highland going towards North Jackson. So your office is across, helping hands, where he, wherever he was studying, mm-hmm. is across from sort of the, the post office in Midtown, yes, that, right there. So it's on, so if you're going north on Highland, mm-hmm. it's on the right. Like, is it near that Exxon station at the corner of Campbell? It's really close by that Highland? Exxon station, right across from Cadence Bank. Literally, yes. our office is right across the street. Okay. So we're in between Tucker and Campbell, but it's a three-story building. Okay. And so it, it's very visible. Yes. So it's, it's right there, on almost on the road, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Three-story building. I think I'm, I'm just trying to give people listening an, an idea of where this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the street is the Cadence Bank, like you said. Mm-hmm. I believe the vintage clothing store while wow, i forgot the name of it now mm-hmm. and the mother thrifter which is a new store that's opened right there mm-hmm. so you've got some like retail spots there the bank and then on the other side of highland was your office and that's where tyler was that is correct and so he leaves there and turns right onto highland mm-hmm. heading north correct and what what have you been told by either investigators or witnesses or like kind of fill in the blanks there from what happened when he turned right out of when your When he office? turned right, the investigators say that the shots could have happened. I didn't get a lot of detail from, from them. Um, they said it could have happened anywhere from Skyline towards North Parkway. However, uh, there's a White House very close by. Um, there's a gated community as you're approaching north parkway on the right hand side i don't know the name of that the highlands okay I believe. that's mm-hmm. okay so there's a where he crashed the tree that he hit is just a few feet from the highlands and there's a few feet from there going towards my office is a white house on the right hand side mm-hmm. The lady and the man that lived there, he's a priest, and I spoke to his wife that lives in that house. They um, 
witnessed the case shellings being picked up by the police. She says she counted eight of them. The police also confirmed with me that there was eight shots that were fired at my vehicle. What I was told was the shot started from the back driver's side. So Tyler was driving. There was no one else in the vehicle. And the shot started from the back seat area. Uh, and then most of the shots on the driver's door. Wow. So you could see, I'm sure on your car, you mm -hmm. could see the... I've never, I hadn't seen my car yet. Seen. No. Oh. I have not seen it yet. But this is just going off of what the police told me, the investigator told me. Okay. It, so have you not seen your car because it's still evidence in an open case or you just have it's a personal decision you just don't want to see it well i've asked to see the vehicle um just for my own closure so i can actually see what it looked like other than what i saw in wbbj hmm. um but i've not been allowed to see the vehicle because it's still an open, an open case investigation mm -hmm. okay i want to see the vehicle but i have not been able to see it yet so eight eight case shillings and you said that it, from what you were told the the shoot the shots started from the back driver's side and Correct. he's the only one in the car. Mm -hmm. Do you know, do you know how many did the coroner or the uh, medical examiner tell you how many hit him? One, oh, one okay. bullet um, hit my son, only one, and that was just a fatal shot. It hit him from the back, uh, his lower back, and I don't know if it came all the way out or what, but it was near his right chest. Mm. When I saw him laying there, he had on a red T-shirt, and the only blood that you could see was, and you couldn't see because he had on a red T-shirt, but there was a small circle that was darker red than everywhere else. So that let me know that it either, it didn't come out. I didn't see any holes there. Right, it was just, you could just see. But I could see it was a dark red circle there. Um, and that's the only evidence that I saw when I physically saw him laying there. So other than that, it, like you said earlier, it just looked like him. Exactly. Asleep. Exactly. Arresting. Mm -hmm. When you spoke to, to witnesses, and I guess the priest's wife is one, um, did they hear the crash? Did they hear the shots? Did anybody hear anything around? Or what, what have you been told as far as the identity of the other vehicle that the shots were coming from? Mm -hmm. Like, we're, like I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming... The investigation was was opened immediately. Mm -hmm. So after that happened, and I know you said earlier that like pretty much there were probably weeks and months that were a haze, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? But in those weeks and months after that, were you in regular communication with investigators, or how, how did that all play out? So it was reported to me from the investigator um, that it was a black vehicle. They did not. I don't know if it was an SUV or a black car, or if it was a sports car, because you can only imagine, I mean, anytime right after that happened, I saw a black vehicle that had, they, originally it was tenant, somewhat tenant windows, um, from what I was told. Um, anytime I saw a black vehicle, I was thinking that was a suspect, mm -hmm. like every single one. So, and then that was what I was told from the police. Um, however, and they also mentioned that was some people that were standing around, when paramedics and the police had arrived um, no one has reported gunshots i have not seen the police report officially i'm just now at the point of like i want to now go see it 
but I have never even asked for it. Um, it wasn't provided, and I did not ask for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I have been told, what people have said to me, it was a lot of people around that area between North Parkway and Highland, and no one has reported hearing gunshots. What what I have been told from that White House, as I mentioned before, where the eight K Shellings were found right in front of that house, her husband is a priest. And the reason why I end up finding them is someone that I'm friends with. That's her cousin. Oh, wow. And she said, my cousin saw your son. And I said, I need to talk to him. And that's how I end up having that conversation. He's a priest. His first name is Ben. I just, I love him. I've never <laughs> met him, but I love that man. Uh, and I was on the phone with him and he allowed me to ask questions. So when he, what he described was when he walked up, him and his wife were in the house and they heard a crash, a loud crash. They ran outside immediately and to find the black SUV crashed up against a tree. He went up there. He said it was about five people standing around the vehicle. Um, he did. I don't know what those people look like or anything like that. Um, but he ended up going to the vehicle and he saw my son. He just, and I asked for a full description of everything that he saw. And he said he saw Tyler kind of laid a little bit over on the, passenger side uh his eyes were open and he asked questions like do you can you hear me and blank or you know just trying to get him to respond Tyler was none did not respond to anything did not blink his eyes nothing so Tyler had already was nearly transitioned at that point Mm -hmm. um if not all the way you know Mm -hmm. so but he got there literally right after the crash just right there at the scene in their house from where the tree is located at it was literally just a few feet. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just a few feet from that actual tree. And if you drive by Holland now, um, by that um, subdivision, you'll see the tree is marked. It has a red line around it, has like these artificial flowers and a cross in the front. I do want to move that grass so people can see that cross or get a bigger cross for people to see. But it's really close in proximity to that priest's house. Later on, I spoke directly to the wife. I actually drove to their house to meet. They had invited me for dinner, like right after my son's passing. I just mentally wasn't ready to do that. Um, But I did later on go to meet them, and he wasn't home, but she was. And she was very nice and so sweet and let me know about the eight case shillings that were found outside of her house. I did not know that until she told me that. Um, that they were all right there. So from the time in which my son was shot uh, in proximity to that tree was just literally just a few feet away. So he passed away very quickly because they were able to run outside immediately after they heard the crash. So um, it all happened very fast. I don't know if Tyler even saw what happened to him because if my, in my opinion, um, now this is me watching CSI and stuff, you know, all this kind of, you know, I'm, I'm now the investigator. But it seemed to me from where the bullet entered his body that the shot came from behind that when they were shooting from the back seat, mm-hmm. it came up from behind. From there. Because it to me, it couldn't have got from the side of the door because then the bullet would have been over somewhere on the side of his body versus his back. So... That's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, that's just me thinking out loud, but that's what I believe happened. Um, and I, I really believe it was a passenger in the car, to be honest. I, I don't know how a driver could drive and, and do all of that at the same sure. time. 
um, we got there the next day to, to find the tree. Um, and all we knew was that he had a tree. We found the tree from the debris in the road mm-hmm. and everything around that tree. And um, we also took pictures of all of that that we saw. And we also saw streaks in the road where you could see his car. You could see where the car, the, my SUV went, and you could see it go straight into the tree. So he was on the, in the far left lane. And then the vehicle went to the right and hit the tree. Mm. So he was in the left. Wait. So Tyler was in the left? The vehicle at some point, uh, the pictures that I have, okay. we took pictures of the road to see the tire marks. Oh, okay. The tire marks has the from the left lane going and into the, the tree. Wow. So okay. the driver could have came from the other direction. From the o- but I don't know if that would make sense to me. Like I don't, yeah, especially know. if the bullet started from the back. Because I always thought he was in the far right. When I originally, you know, originally I thought he was in the far right lane the whole time, and he could have been when he got hit. He could have been in the far right lane and then and swerved, swerved and then swerved and back. then swerved back and because it it would make sense as to why the tire marks were so vivid of in course. a certain area that he was probably accelerating. Uh, his foot had probably hit it because mm. of him lack of. Yeah, it's like a presence. Um, I remember that day um, or that night, I guess that that night I was hosting some of my uh, teacher friends, old teacher friends from Northeast on my front porch, uh, my house. And I was working in Haywood County at the time, but I got I don't remember who I got it from or as a part of a group text or something. And someone had said, hey, uh Sabrina's son was killed tonight. And even though I'd had Tyler five, four or five years previous, like I immediately knew mm-hmm. like who that was. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, I don't understand that. Like, cause I think I texted back. I was like, Oh my God, like what happened? Was it a car wreck? Like that was my first, that was my first thought. Mm-hmm. So I knew Tyler in school and I knew like he wasn't, he was never any trouble. And not mm-hmm. that, not that that always means everything. Right, right. But my first thought wasn't, oh, he must have been mixed up. And so, like, that mm-hmm. was, that's not my first thought at all. Mm-hmm. My first thought was, like, there, there was an accident. Something happened. There's an accident. Mm-hmm. And I said, what happened? And, they, and I think there was, like, oh, I heard he was shot. And I was like, man. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't fit. Like, for me, I was like, that doesn't fit. And I remember I was like, hey, and I, the people that were there, I don't think any of them had him. Mm-hmm. But I was like, do you, you know, one of my former students. And, and I was like, and I, I remember thinking, like, I can't, I can't make this connection because either a few weeks before Tyler's situation happened, or a few weeks after, there was something similar that happened on North Parkway off the bypass. Mm-hmm. But that was also a former student. But it was also, it was gang related. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So I think, like we talked on the radio, like there are narratives that certain people have. So I think it's important to be very clear mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. What makes this situation, in my opinion, it would be hard no matter what. I think probably a year and a half away from it, what's making it harder is that there's no there's no logic to it at this no. point, right? No. Like, because there is no, there was no gang affiliation. No. 
There was no beef with anybody. No. So nope, there's no They answer. ruled out all that. The police checked into all mm-hmm. that because they have to. So they looked into my son. I mean, they have his phones now. You know, it's still part of evidence. So they looked into all that. And I remember them telling me they're going to look into all that. And I'm like, whatever. You know, because as a parent, as much as I adore my son and think he's the was the most adorable person on the earth, I still am not naive to think that, okay, you know, he could have been involved in something that I don't know about. That happens. Mm -hmm. So, and I wanted to know, you know, so they did check into all of those things and ruled out that, no, he wasn't in a gang and no, he wasn't, wasn't a drug deal gone bad or anything like that. He was literally just driving down a road. He just happened to be the person that got shot. And that is very scary. And that's what we really need to be concerned about because that means that it could have been you, me, or anybody. Tyler just seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And what I am starting to hear is that there was some gang initiation thing going on around the same exact time, around the same exact week. And it literally could have been my son is was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and so that's the conclusion that I'm coming to, but we definitely need someone to say, what did the people look like persons or person or persons look like that was in that vehicle that the original people witnessed and said it was a black vehicle, but I don't know if they provided a full description as to who was in that car. Were they, were they white? Were they black? I mean, I don't know. And I've not been reported anything. We did know that the gun was found uh, on two individuals. It was found in the passenger, at the bottom of the passenger seat uh, by someone named Tyler. Hmm. He had the gun that was underneath his seat. They were arrested for an unrelated charge, um, but they found the gun that actually killed my son. So they do have that in evidence. They have the weapon. They have the actual weapon weapon that Mm -hmm. was used. Yes. And And they got it on an unrelated incident. Correct. But there was was there not enough evidence not, to connect the people who were arrested with the gun correct. to the shooting? That's right. They sent it to TBI for the forensics, and it just came back where there was no person or persons they can pinpoint it to, apparently. They just didn't have enough evidence. So those two gentlemen that were driving that car, they were released, you know, so there was not enough evidence to hold them. So... I don't know. Did they find any fingerprints at all? Did they just not find any fingerprints? Wait, er, I don't know those answers on that. Um, and that's why I feel like I need to equip myself and my family with more resources because I need to dig deeper. I have a lot. If you can imagine, I have a lot of questions uh, about the gun itself and when was it sent to forensics you know and how long did that process take and were there any fingerprints at all or were there none or were there fingerprints not where you could read them at all you know so is that the reason why i don't know i want to bring this back and i'm going to make this connection so so stay with me while i do it we started our conversation over an hour ago about why you came to jackson in the first place and that was to help people navigate a really sometimes confusing and complex system of Medicaid Mm -hmm. and to get them help because they weren't just equipped to do that. Mm -hmm. And now you're, you're sort of finding yourself in a parallel situation in a way, Mm -hmm. it seems to where you're a parent who has lost her child to a shooting. It's a year and a half later and nobody really knows anything. 
mm-hmm. more than they did, you know, right. right after it happened. Right. What's the process been like for you trying to navigate this system of getting information from authorities about about this murder that happened over a year ago? Like, has it been uh, has it been hard to navigate this system? Very hard. And even worse, if you're mentally not really there and you're going through the worst depression of your entire mm-hmm. life and you're now having to think about forensics and, and all these things that you're not familiar with. This is uncharted territory for me. And there's no victim's advocate that's helping me through the process, which, by the way, we need to have that mm. at the Jackson Police Department. Yeah. You need to have someone that can be that voice for you, but there's no voice for the victim's family. You're just left to either know what questions to ask, know how to navigate the process, but to do that, you'd have to have experience in the process. And to be honest, the police department could, people that work there could be kind of almost, you know, where they are. They don't have the emotion behind it because they see this all the time. And you can't blame them for that because this is what they do. It's their job. It's their job. So they don't have the emotion behind it. But, and that's why I believe you do need to have an advocate to help with the process. Sure. Because for me, it was me texting the investigator. You know, at first I would text him every week until I could tell that I shouldn't do that. Mm. <laughs> and then it was I confronted someone at the police department and he was really upset at me and I was really upset at him. Why was he upset? He was upset at me, I guess, because I was asking questions and I just, I couldn't understand why he didn't understand that I have to ask questions. Of course. (laughs) And I, I didn't appreciate his attitude behind that. Um, It just showed lack of empathy at all. Like I'm the mom just wanted to know what happened to my child. Do, Do you think it's fair to say and, and it's not a, it's not trying to give me trying to give the police department or an officer like uh, an excuse or or you know make them a scapegoat for anything. Do you think it's more of the the system that's in place right now isn't con- like doesn't help people like you, victims right. who like I guess parents of victims or family members of victims like who are left to try to figure these things out like that system is not currently equipped to handle that in an efficient way, or not even efficient, just handle it, period. They don't, they don't have the necessary tools, so I can't point the finger over there. Mm-hmm. I can say that they do need to have a system just specifically designed for victims' family. Um, they need an advocate, and so that way they know what questions to ask, how to go through that process. That would have relieved so much stress on me, and then I wouldn't feel have felt like oh i'm i'm annoying to someone because i'm asking do you have any leads in fact i was asked by the investigator do do i have any leads i'm like well i don't have any leads. so um it's do, let me ask you this did you did you feel like you were being annoying yes what? yeah so I you did. so did you feel all right did you feel bad about that i did oh like yeah. and, I, and i'll say this like i'm like i'm 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 with you because knowing my personality i probably would have been made to feel that way too but i think i can say and you probably know this and you know knowing something in your head is different than feeling it mm-hmm. but obviously you had every right and more to ask that and you could have texted that guy every day three times a day mm-hmm 
and it would have been perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I'm sure you mentally know yeah. that. Right. You know, and I, right. But, but and, and I think that's something that like a, a parent of a victim or a family should never feel mm-hmm. like they're being annoying or too much for just wanting some answers to something like this. And from their perspective, I'm hearing, okay, I got other cases. I got other things that I have to do. And they were, you know, they were all nice. Only one police officer wasn't nice. Okay. So good job for JPD on that end of it. Mm -hmm. It was one that was, he was, that was pretty horrible. Uh, But everyone was doing what they could with the, with whatever tools that they have. I just don't know the steps. And I'm so I'm out of the loop on that end of it. It's like me trying to figure out how to run the country, you know, and yeah. be the president. I mean, I, I, you step me in that role, I'm really going to suck at it. I'm going to just right. tell you. Um, so I don't understand the process. And we do need to have uh, a voice for the victims. We, we must put something like that in place um, so that they can navigate the process without feeling like they're being a burden or even not just that just having the information and on who to call and what to do would be very helpful. And having someone that's the liaison between the Jackson police department and the victim's family, that's what we're needing. We don't have that. Like we know, and this is nothing like, you know, this is just telling the truth. We know that there is, is a, an issue of crime in Jackson, Mm -hmm. right? Just, and look, there's issues of crime in in towns everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Gun violence, is an issue in Jackson, just like it seems to be an issue in a lot of different places. So this happened to you, but I'm sure you've thought about this too. How many other people are there like you right. that are out there and who may not like you, I do believe you have some, some resources, mm-hmm. you know, within mm-hmm. your satellite of connections in Jackson and the, in the programs you've been a part of and things Correct. like that. Do you ever think about like how many people that are like you in your situation, but who don't have that's exactly resources? what I think about because I call TBI to speak to someone at forensics that handles the guns and all that that come in from the Jackson Police Department. But I knew how to navigate that part of it to ask enough questions to land me to that person. Mm-hmm. But if I don't know what questions to ask, where in the world do I even start? And that leads me to where what you're talking about right now is okay for all these other people that don't have any connections that I have I'm very blessed to to know some amazing people in Jackson but they're not part of homicide that they're not connected to this either you know but like Chuck from yesterday here's a great uh not yesterday but yeah when I was on your show here's a great resource for you to call for legal advice. Here's a great resource of an investigator. I mean, I have some really good connections that can connect me to people who know. Right. Um, But a lot of people don't. And that's why I feel like, man, am I, I I feel like this is now something that I need to be involved in and helping steer uh, something for the victim's family. I still don't know what we want to use the Tyler Guy Fund for. But at the end of the day, I feel like it's imperative that we do something to help out teens or at least steer programs to be be developed. And we're already in the works of that. Mm -hmm. But there's still that empty gap of what about the victim's family? Um, And even worse, you got victim's family that are gang related. And they don't. And now they're afraid of retaliation. There's other cities that have developed funds to help them so that they're safe. Right. Because that's where the, the 
more crime is involved now somebody's retaliating because of this so there's other cities that have already incorporated ways to keep victims families safe and protected Um, but i don't hear these conversations happening here in jackson in fact like i mentioned earlier that day on may the 20th that morning we were talking about ways to reduce gun violence here in jackson it's almost like this has to happen to someone who has these connections and resources for anything to even get started to address it. And that is, it's shameful. And, but but I think that's the reality of what happens. Obviously, Tyler is not the first homicide victim in Jackson. No. Um, There's, there have been, I would assume a lot before him. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would assume all of those cases have not been solved. Correct. And I would assume there are people who are left here, like you, mm-hmm. who have no answers still. And the fact that nobody's even talking about a victim advocate for the police department mm-hmm. until... And, and maybe there have been, but it's just sometimes like shouting into the wind. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it, this has to happen to the quote-unquote like... I shouldn't say right person, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, someone with connections and resources and a voice. Exactly. Because there are so many people in our community that, that are voiceless in a way mm-hmm. where when something does happen, whether it's with oral care or something like this mm-hmm. to where they, they don't have the resources or the voice to have some of their needs met in some way. Um, I'm going to ask you two more questions and then just sort of end with a charge or, or anything you want to say to whoever's listening about how this can be productive moving forward. Um, the first question is this. Back in March with the Covenant shooting in, in Nashville, um, I knew a child who, who was killed. I, was, I am friends with their parents. Um, parents lived in, in Texas. When my daughter lived down there, we spent a lot of time. I grew up with the child's mom I'm, I'm fairly close to the family and immediately after that happened like it, it it was it was the closest thing to happen to me with gun violence uh i i've I'm always been an outspoken person about political issues and social issues always um but after that i didn't want to be outspoken at all even though people who know me know probably my stance on gun violence and guns in general and things like that but i just started looking at social media and i saw both sides of of the gun argument start spouting off what they thought they knew, you know, mm-hmm. like, Oh, mm-hmm. we need to do something about guns or no, this is a second. Like, like I was, and I, I, I had no desire to engage because this situation felt so personal. And then I started thinking back, how many times have I engaged in these, not even arguments, but just giving my opinion on something after something's happened that I don't have a personal connection to. And then I thought, man, is that disrespectful? So the first question to ask, I wanted to ask you as, as a parent who's lost a child, to gun violence is when something like that personally happens to you, do you have any thought, any kind of like, I don't want to say political thought, but any kind of thought of like, how can I prevent this from happening again? And then does it align with one side or the other? And do you feel a certain way about all of these narratives that are out there, Mm -hmm. sort of just out there being thrown out back and forth, back and forth? Mm -hmm. Like or, or does something like that, when it happens, does it sort of solidify your thoughts on something and it makes you want to make a change? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think where I land is back to the conversation that I had, the prayer mm-hmm. that I had with the medical director present as I'm seeing my son in a body bag. Your mind mentally can't be in a safe space to make the decision to have murdered someone in the first place. So I really believe that we need to look politically, not at the gun itself, but at the state of someone's mental health. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about someone that is struggling with racism. I'm talking about someone that is struggling with gang-related environment and how we can help navigate and put them in a different environment mentally. You are in a mentally unstable place if you're making all of those decisions in the first place. If you're in a gang, there's mentally something that's probably there. Mm-hmm. Aces and making sure that we're providing surveys and making sure that we are making assessments and making sure we have the programs available and making sure people know about what those programs are and how they can benefit them. I'm talking about us moving our conversation more away from the gun itself. Mm-hmm. and the mental choices that we make mm-hmm. and providing resources for those people and being v- very deliberate about those things. That's where the weak spot is at. Um, we can debate guns all day long, right. but in the hands of someone that's mentally unstable, and then how do we define someone that's mentally unstable? And so those are the conversations that I am having now, and those are the things that we can do something about. This should be a non political issue Mm -hmm. you should never want someone that's mentally unstable to have a gun Mm -hmm. because they make bad decisions because they're mentally unstable sure that's why it's not a matter of republican or democrat or anything you know i i'm an advocate to having a gun i'm about to buy one very soon myself Mm -hmm. so it's not about you know having a gun in the possession thereof but it's a matter about are you mentally prepared to have that gun right do you and it needs to be some type of way of measuring that so that the people that purchase that we know that they are mentally stable enough to own that particular gun because they'll take the safety precautions that's necessary and make mentally good decisions. Mm-hmm. That's a no-brainer. It shouldn't even be a political issue. Right. You would think. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like everything is. The second question I want to ask you. Closure is a weird word, and I don't even know if I personally believe in something called closure. I, I, I think I believe more in, in sort of a, a, a progressive evolution of like, you know, like any kind of tragedy, a breakup, a death or whatever, just the process of grief and moving on from it. I don't know if anything's ever necessarily like quote unquote closed, but that's not, that's not the question I want to ask. The question I want to ask is as someone who has lost a child, to gun violence how difficult is it to not have any answers still a year and a half later it does that add to the grief of this is it is it an impediment to quote-unquote closure for you it absolutely is not having almost like a resolution of like the why why did th- that's what you want to know if your child dies of a car accident that you know what happened you know the why if it's cancer or something else you have the why uh, but when you don't have a why like why did this happen and you have no idea it's it, it's hard for you to even wrap your head around losing that person let alone having that emptiness of not knowing why did i have to lose this person mm. uh, so 
not having the answers to that leaves that hole in your own heart of just not being able to kind of wrap it into a full narrative of understanding this was his life. This is why it ended. And, and you still got to move on and have peace within that itself. But not having a way to have those answers holds you back from being whole yourself. Yeah, I knew, I think there's something to us as humans. Um, you know, and I think you see this in, in Christianity and in a lot of different religions. Um, something to us as humans to have a beginning, a middle, and an end to anything, mm-hmm. whether that's a day, a work day, a game, something. Like we're all conditioned to have a starting point and an ending point. And so I think that speaks to what you just said is knowing the why. Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to change anything. Right. But it, you're going to have, a, a, at least in your mind, there's that narrative that's going to have a, a complete, it's not going to be open-ended. Mm-hmm. It's exactly. not going to be just sitting there. And that's what I see. Closed. When I see his pictures that are through my house, I just don't know why I lost him. I know how beautiful he was and will always be in my mind. But the why that I lose him, I don't have any answers to that. And everyone should be concerned about that because if it's left open to well, that was just random. Well, that means that anyone driving down Highland Avenue, if you're black, white, purple, young or old, you could be shot at as you drive down Highland Avenue. So just be warned. That's what that means. So having an answer will help our whole community, not just me. It actually helps our whole community because that means that it's going to be really scary if you're driving down any road around here and you may get shot at, you may be, it may not be your day to, that day. And so having a way to resolve that in my mind also helps our whole community have a way of knowing that they're safe because the thought of a random shooting just happening with no justification at all, um, it, not to justify a gang related activity. If someone was in a gang and they're doing some kind of initiation, not that that's justified, but at least now you have a way to now figure out how to help your community. That's right. At least there's some logic behind it. Then. Exactly. That's a great point. I never thought, I think you said on the radio, and I don't think it registered with me then like it's doing right now. You're right. Like, it, sure, it would help you personally, but also to have an answer to this. You're right, because right, technically right now, as open as it is, mm-hmm. it's just a random thing it, that can happen to anybody. Exactly. Because you don't, because we don't have that, that end of the story closed off. Correct. And therefore, without without an ending, it's open to interpretation. Exactly. And then that does, you know, technically involve everyone driving down Highland exactly. in that stretch. Right. And we don't want it to be something no. that someone just got a gun and decided, I'm just gonna randomly Today, I'm going to randomly shoot someone. to shoot a car. Right. Yeah. So that's scary for us also. We definitely want the community to help us at least get a lead. We don't care if it's a big lead, a small lead, in between lead. We just have to have someone to call in. We've had zero people, zero. Uh, uh, Crime Stoppers, Mike over there said, in all the years of experience that he has, he has never seen it where zero leads happen, none. So we just need people to call in and whatever you can recall, if you were around North Parkway in Holland on that day and remember my precious son being murdered that day, um, we just ask them for people to call and, and say something. May 20th, 2022, 
what time? Four o'clock in the afternoon? Almost five o'clock in the afternoon. So around close to five o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So somewhere between, we could say safely, 445 and yep. five o'clock? Mm-hmm. Yes. May 20th on a what is normally a busy stretch on a Friday of road in Jackson on a Friday afternoon yeah. between Skyline and Highland. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Skyline, Skyline and Parkway. Yes. On North Highland traveling north. Exactly. If anybody saw anything, heard anything, knows anything... Who do they need to reach out to? They need to reach out to Crime Stoppers. Okay, That's so completely anonymous. And if they reach out to Crime Stoppers, they can get a $1,000 reward for any arrests that are made. Uh, and our family is offering a $5,000 reward for any arrest and conviction that is made. Okay. And then the Tyler Guy Fund, if somebody wants to donate to that. Yes, they need to go to the community. I think it's Community Foundation of West Tennessee. They will then select the Tyler Guy Fund, and they can then donate. 100% of what's donated will go to providing the resources that we spoke about earlier for teens and for victims' families. Wow. Sabrina, you are continuing to do uh, great work here. Uh, This is obviously... Not a circumstance you ever thought you would have to be <laughs> doing mm-hmm. advocacy work for. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I've always thought a lot of you and what you did for the community. Um, my heart goes out to you for this situation. Thank you. With Tyler. Um, I know him to be a great kid. I know your daughter to be a great kid. Mm-hmm. So you've obviously done a great job as a parent. Thank um, you. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for having me here and letting it be told.